but innovation is not always about um, like a new solution, like out of scratch, but it can just as easily be applying existing solutions to new environments. And I learned that from, from them. Anything that you're trying to do or any problem that you face, there's an industry that does it better than you. Or there's an industry in which like that problem is even gnarlier. And so trying to look outward and then how does that apply is just such a huge opportunity. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Austin Driggers is the guest for today's podcast, and Austin is here to chat around injury risk reduction strategies and how he's implemented some of those in baseball, what they look like, how it's developed over time, and what other sports can learn from baseball given the jam-packed schedule that they have. We also have a little chat around the maturation and the specialization of sports science, especially in the US. Then we have some really interesting chats towards the end about what sports science and sports scientists can learn from environments outside of sports. So business been one and other environments. And that's something that Austin, it sounds like has done really well and something that we can learn more about especially from this episode. So I really appreciate Austin coming on. It's been a long time coming. There's been a lot of changes at the Royals recently, so I appreciate him coming on for a chat and uh, it'll be an episode I'm sure you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's a perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsored by Smarterbase. So Smarterbase is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. So built on an infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategies, processes, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. 
Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using smarter bases, robust API, and pre-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the SmarterBase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand by it. Visit SmarterBase.com to learn how SmarterBase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. So without further ado, over to the episode with Austin. Austin Driggers, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to finally get you on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Uh, you started the show about a year and a half before my first sports science role. And so I've, I've almost grown up with the show and it was extremely helpful to me then and preparing me for that first role. And you've kept it up and now it's it might be our industry's ultimate treasure trove. So honored to be a part of it in yeah. any way. I'm sorry you've made it this far down on the depth chart, but... That's what happens when you run as long as you have. <laughs> Death chat. It's a nice a pleasure to have you, and thank you for that. It's um, yeah, it's mad, I suppose, not to go on to my own journey because it's definitely not about me. But yeah, to what so what that was two thousand and to end of two thousand thirteen when it started. So your first role, two thousand fifteen. Uh no, I 16? guess uh, I was one year off. Twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Okay. Is when I switched over from strength conditioning. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Dive, like gives an insight into that. Yeah. So um, currently I'm the senior director of performance science for the Kansas City Royals uh, in Major League Baseball, uh, which is a front office based role and really interacts with every department within baseball operations. Um, I know you do uh, you do bios. So I'll kind of give you the journey underneath that. Um, I was born into a just straight sports family. My mom was a coach. My dad was a coach, uh, mostly baseball, American football. My sister was a track star, went to the Olympic trials and pole vault for London. Um, I played football and baseball my whole life, planned on coaching, playing in college and then coaching after. Uh, never dreamed of doing anything else. Uh, my parents were very opposed to that plan. They did not want me to coach. Uh, I excelled in, in school from a pretty early age, and I think they thought I was kind of wasting that. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> I, I grew up in Texas, and American football is basically a religion there. There's probably enough shows about that now uh, for even your UK listeners to understand. And so I was dead set on playing football in college. However, I'm like 5'8", or maybe hundred and 173 centimeters. So uh, on a major college football field, that doesn't leave a whole lot of positions that you can play. Um, but my my grades in football got me admitted to a small college in Chicago with very, very high academic standards. And so now my parents were really panicking um, because uh, you're going to waste this great education on, on teaching and coaching. And don't get me wrong, Wheaton College is not Oxford, but you can imagine if, if you get in, um, to like St. Andrews or Warwick, parents are like, oh my gosh, like, don't do that. Um, so I conceded and, and I studied pre med there, uh, applied health science. But a couple things happened. One, I ended up playing football and baseball. 
in college and that required drastic changes to my body and training approach on really short timelines, bouncing back and forth between those sports, um, which was a challenge, but also everything I was learning in the classroom from applied health science, I could, I could apply to that process. And I also found that I absolutely loved everything about that process. And the professor that helped me do a lot of that, like begged me to get into strength conditioning after, um, which is also an easy sell because I didn't have the grades to get into a good medical school anyway. So I get an internship lined up with the Chicago Bears in 2011 and the, the NFL lockout happens. So they have no players and I have no internship. So I'm panicking. And our head coach's wife was a four-time Olympic speed skater. She makes a phone call and gets me in uh, at the Olympic Training Center for an internship there uh, in Lake Placid, where we have like bobsled, skeleton, luge, and those sports. So I show up in New York for the summer, introduce myself to Brad DeWeese, who's there at the time. He's uh, the high-performance director for the New York Jets now. Um, And Brad is oddly cold with me, oddly cold. And come to find out, uh, he was voluntold that he was getting an intern, didn't want one, and he was pissed that I was even there (laughs) when I showed up. And we laugh about that now because we actually hit it off really well um, after uh, that rocky start. Um, But he gets me connected to East Tennessee State University um, for graduate school. So I get to go there and learn from some real U.S. legends in sports science, most notably Mike Stone and Bill Sands, who was there at the time. Uh, phenomenal experience. And when I was going into that, I knew I wanted to work in Major League Baseball, um, at least for a period. My dad was a manager uh, in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization when I was born, and he had to like get out because the travel was just brutal on our family. And so I wanted to do that when I was young. And so I sent... 30 emails to 30 teams, heard back from eight, got two interviews and ultimately an opportunity to be a strength conditioning coach with the Kansas City Royals for short season that summer uh, in 2013. Loved it. Um, Went back in the fall, finished out all my coursework so I could take that next spring off um, and be a strength coach at a full season affiliate and then ended up doing that um, for four seasons total as as a strength conditioning coach. And as I got settled into strength conditioning, I knew I wanted to work um, in a sports science capacity, but it was just starting to gain momentum in the U.S., at least in major sport. There were some exceptions of early adopters there, Um, but I was kind of waiting for that to unfold. So I just started doing sports science with the Royals and our medical staff um, appreciated that service and got me the opportunity to pitch a full-time role to our front office. Um, and so I did in 2016 and, um, my, I was fortunate at the time because I actually thought I was leaving to, uh, take a high performance coordinator role back in Olympic sport. And so I didn't feel any pressure at all. I thought I was just pitching the position and then I was going to recommend somebody else for the job. Um, but then the organization ended up hiring internally. And so I ended up taking the job I created, which was sports science coordinator, Um, So that was 2016. And then I built out um, sports science and then uh, in a lot of other roles, like things have changed a lot, even in my time, Major League Baseball, like we didn't have nutrition at the time. And now we do. We didn't have psychology at the time. Now we do. Um, Analytics has grown a lot. Um, So, yeah, built 
built everything out. That was an Arizona-based role uh, originally and then moved to Kansas City uh, in 2019 to be more involved with the Major League Club here and been there ever since. What a story. <laughs> Good story. So started in, that was 2011, didn't, didn't, and didn't leave? Or did you, was it later than that when you started? Uh, 2013, 2013 was my first season. So okay. just wrapped up my 10th season. So yeah, four, four as a strength and conditioning coach and six in the front office. And not to be disrespectful to sports generally, but the name's still on the door after all that time. <laughs> Good work. Yeah, it's a rare, uh, it's it's a rare one, isn't it? Yeah, good work, excellent. So what? So that that transition from strength and conditioning to what you described as sports science. What what was the reason for that? Was there just a particular interest in a, in an area of sports science? Were you, were you seeing it getting more influence, and you wanted to get on, you know, jump on the train? What was that scenario for you? Um, I would. I'd probably go back to Lake Placid and Brad DeWeese and what he was doing there probably wet my appetite in sports science. And then the graduate program there, um, like Mike Stone and Bill Sands were, were in really unique roles. I mean, they spent, they spent time abroad, um, but what they were doing in like the eighties and nineties, was just so ahead of its time and I got exposed to that and like loved what they had been able to do. Um, especially Bill Sands is, is lesser known, I think, um, probably because most of his career was in gymnastics. Um, but he was so unbelievably ahead of his time in being a pioneer in terms of everything we do today in athlete monitoring programs. Um, he was doing at a time where, the, the technology just like wasn't there. And so he was like building his own instrumentation. Uh, he was programming computers on like DOS based systems and having like punch cards that his gymnasts were filling out. And this is like in the nineties. Um, and so hearing about, uh, learning about everything they had done, uh, loved everything about it. And I think a lot of it too was, uh, like my background and, and applied, sports science or applied health science. Uh, I loved the idea of applying that to human performance and loved everything. So like, yes, physical training, um, and the physical preparation process underpinning great, uh, great athletes matters for sure. Uh, and that was of interest, but I was a lot interested in the bigger picture of like everything that goes into, um, into finding, developing elite performance. And so sports science seemed like the best avenue to, to pursue that. We'll come back to the um, to the article that you wrote for Sportsmith a few months ago. I can't remember when it was. Um, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later. I think this is probably a good segue into looking at one of those sections of, of the performance system, and that's reducing injury risk. And you've obviously done a lot of work in that area, and I'd love to you to dive into what your philosophy when it comes to that area and then some of the stuff that you're doing at the Royals that you're happy to share with us, hopefully. Not getting into any trouble. So, as you're well aware, there's this giant veil of secrecy that seems to be thicker and darker in Major League Baseball, uh, which I don't entirely understand. Uh, but yeah, it, injury risk management is is one area that we were pretty open about sharing. 
Um, and I have a pretty traditional approach, I would say, like pretty consistent with what you would read in like Joyce and Lewandon's book in terms of that process. Um, I'd probably reorder it a little bit. So the generic warning list, what injuries are occurring in our sport? Like what are, what are we trying to uh, mitigate in the first place? Generic movement proficiency, like what is the quality of their fundamental movement, motor control? Because that's going to matter for everything, right? In the weight room, on the field, um, everywhere. So we have a comprehensive like orthopedic evaluation, pulls a lot from F- FMS, SFMA, Y balance, some stuff from TPI. We've kind of pieced together a process there to, to understand how our players move. And then you go to the individual warning list. Uh, which is we know that injury history trumps everything, right? So what is what is each player in, encountered before, and what does that mean for us? What do we need to do about that? Which that can be a difficult question in its own right. You know, if a, if a guy has a back history, it's not entirely clear whether he should avoid deadlifts for the rest of his life, or it's important for him to deadlift very consistently because we got to keep his back strong to protect it. So that requires a lot of. Uh, a lot of multidisciplinary expertise, right? And then we have determination of the risk factors for the injuries you are trying to manage. And so that's your your preferably modifiable intrinsic uh, risk factors, mainly drawing from the research. And then once you know those, how are we going to assess for those in our medical and performance athlete monitoring program? And once you have all that, collect all your data, now you have to deal with the results which I think is probably the crux of the process and where uh, organizations really can separate themselves is, okay, we, we know all this about our players. What do we do about that? Um, like what types of interventions, maintenance programs, uh, et cetera. And then reviewing your outcomes. Uh, how are we doing in that space? What are our man games lost? What injuries are occurring in our system? How does that compare uh, to base rates, is there anything in a particular area that's uh, happening more than we would expect it to, and and what can we uh, go back and look in terms of our uh, the data we've collected to see what might be going on with that? Um, so it sounds simple; it's pretty textbook, but um, it's probably not as as simple as you'd think. And I mean, I just spent however long doing an entire dissertation. Um, over a, a year plus just looking at a few risk factors for one injury, which was hamstring um, injury. So it, there's quite a lot that goes into it. The first thing, how they move, you mentioned a few assessments that you'd got in your within the system. Would you mind just going in a little bit and giving, a, giving us a bit of an idea of a couple, just, just dive in and why you decided those as anything that's kind of come and gone, anything that's been added recently because of any reason in, in particular? Yeah. Um, there's been an ebb and flow of that uh, in general. I would say we try as much as possible. Uh, two things. One, we try to use exclusively clinically validated tests, which is why things like FMS, um, or even like Y balance, that was the star excursion. The original one was like, that's been around for probably 30 years. Uh, the clinical folks will know better than I, we try to, to draw from the literature as much as possible for clinical tests that have already been validated. 
um, so we don't have to like design our own. And I think the other goal is to test as few things as possible. And so to that end, I think there's been um, a lot of like addition and contraction of these things. So for example, like we used to do the full FMS, um, we've eliminated some of those things. Uh, our orthopedic assessment, uh, which is more clinical, like on the table, local joint level function. So like shoulder strength, range of motion, um, hip strength, range of motion. Um, we, that used to be a lot bigger, like probably 120 data points total. Um, I would say there, there've been a lot of those things that we've collected for a couple of years. And then we do, uh, we do a couple lines of research. One relating those things to injury risk, which is really difficult to do, but if there's just no signal there whatsoever and, and the external research is, is a little bit weak, we've pared down um, some of those things. Um, and then I would say the other one, things like principal component analysis. So looking at, um, looking at our own, our own tests, which for the, for the non-statisticians, you're basically looking at correlations between tests um, for maybe three tests that are really after the same thing. And if all three of, of those hip range of motion or uh, like function correlate so highly, then you can get rid of two of those and, and you'll be left with one. Um, so it's been a matter of plug something in from the clinical research, measure it for a couple of years, and then look at what we can cut back. So even with the Y balance test, we used to do all three directions. Um, we didn't really see anything with uh, the two posterior tests. So we just do anterior reach now. Um, and that's a big, in our view, that's a really big bang for buck type assessment because we get um, one ankle, ankle mobility is a big one with that, which you have to account for because if the ankle doesn't move, then they're not going to be able to get into that position. But it's also like overall motor control movement pattern. Like we get a lot out of, out of that test. Um, so yeah, that hopefully that wasn't too vague, but happy to answer any questions on, but, but really the goal is, is to test as few things as possible. Um, and I say that knowing that we, we still have a, quite a high number of tests that it takes us a while um, to get through, especially with 200 players, if you're spending an hour in total. Uh, yeah, the goal is to test as, as few things as possible and eliminate things with high correlations with one another. So we're asking, we're asking the athlete um, to do as little as possible. Um, and I would also, another thing we've tried to do is integrate testing into training processes as much as possible. Um, where the more, uh, I think, uh, Jace Delaney has talked about invisible monitoring a lot. Um, that's really important as well. Like anytime we can integrate something into the, the regular athlete care process, that's not its own test, uh, is a huge win because we're not asking the athlete to do something. We're not adding time to practitioners. Is there anything, any examples of where you've been able to do that? Austin. Um, yeah, I'd say, uh, the counter movement jump is a, is a good example. Um, and especially at the major league level, I, I think an interesting thing in our like progression with that, which 
we've had force plates since 2017 or 18. Um, when, when we did intermittent counter movement jump testing, especially at the major league level and major league players are really tricky, um, and quite averse to a lot of things, um, from a testing, from a data collection standpoint. And there are a lot of reasons, uh, for that. Uh, but that's a, that's a challenge we all face. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, an interesting thing happened when we had a counter movement jump and it was like periodically done, like, Hey, come, come jump on the plates. It was, it was a really big deal to players and we had to like try to talk them into it. And if they weren't feeling it that day, they were out and it was like hard to get them on the plates. And we switched from that to, or we kind of migrated toward every time you lift, you jump. So like you come in, warm up. Uh, maybe do some of the, maybe the first blocks like activation, uh, move into more explosive movements. And we just like lumped the counter movement jump into that process. And they did it every single time they lifted. And at first it was like, Oh my God, I just jumped on Tuesday. Like, like, no, just it's part of your lift. And when we did that, it, it pretty quickly just became part of their lift and they didn't think anything of it. And if they're jumping twice a week, uh, they're not worried about, Oh man, my numbers are going to be down today. I don't want to versus like if it's a monthly thing or, or every two months, um, then yeah, it actually increased compliance by testing it more, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, yeah, so we try to do that as much possible. Uh, a couple other examples, like the Nord board's an easy one. If you're doing, if you're doing Nordics, like do it on the Nord board, uh, and we can monitor that way. Um, I would say with our pitchers, uh, we monitor uh, shoulder strength over the course of the season, and we do that on their. Uh, we call it side day. It's like their bullpen or practice session for pitching. Um, we have like a set of manuals and exercises that they do after that. And, uh, we'll have, we'll test strength like immediately after that, like right in the middle of their shoulder exercise program. So it's just part of what they do. Is there any new assessments that have made the way in recently based off, I know you said that everything's clinically validated. So it's, you know, you can hang your hat on it to a certain extent. Is there anything that's come up in the research that's had to go in? For whatever reason, more recently, um, I don't know how recent. I don't know how recent this is, but I would say the single leg bridge test. Okay. Um, for like posterior chain hamstring yeah. strength, um, which I I did a lot of my dissertation on this. Fresh um, info, but. <laughs> I mean, it's not that fresh. It, it, uh, like McCall 2015 was kind of the, the landmark paper on that. He was, and there were people before that, though, prior to McCall, it, it was more like single leg bridge test. He'll elevate on a box to fail, like reps to how many reps you could do to technical failure. Um, and then McCall integrated force plates, uh, into that and, uh, and saw a lot with like sensitivity to fatigue, uh, and you're you're getting better biceps femoris activation because you're at, at longer lever lengths, and uh, that would uh, that was probably the most recent addition, which I'd say 2018, 19 or so. Uh, we started testing that. 
maybe some on-base U stuff, which is, if you're familiar with the Titleist Performance Institute, um, on-base U is kind of their baseball, softball version of that. Um, so there's a couple of, of those tests that we've integrated in. And that was, that was less injury risk management and more um, for like our hitting coaches and pitching coaches, particularly with like T-spine mobility and function. Mm-hmm. So how how many kind of subgroups are there when it comes to the type of test that they do? Does everyone, is it kind of, yeah, how, how many is there within the larger 200 or how many athletes you've got? Or is everyone doing the same? Um, I would say we have, we have some subtle differences between major league and minor league, but nothing major there um and there there are several reasons um for that um but for the most part those are are pretty consistent um and and those athlete care at those levels a little bit different because we have uh, um the ratio of practitioner to player is so much different at the major league level that we have more people getting their hands on people more often and so it almost requires less um like measurement of things um and conversely, at the major league level, we also have things that are measured passively. So, um, yeah, there are some technology differences there. But by and large, I would say it's pretty consistent across the board. The The only differences, I'd say the biggest differences we have is position players versus pitchers would be the two biggest categories. Um, and the main, main things are pitchers run a yo-yo IR1 a few times a year um, for test aerobic capacity, cardiovascular fitness. We don't ask our, our position players to do that. That would be a riot. Um, our, and our, our position players do uh, 10 meter sprint testing, uh, regularly, um, which we don't ask our pitchers to do, um, would be the main differences, but yeah, by and large, we, we try to keep that as consistent as possible. So within, within such a Ram schedule, when are you, and you've mentioned there about the, the yo-yo at certain points in the year, when are all these like movement screens and things, where, where do they fit in? How do they fit in? Are they, you know, around games? Are they during certain breaks? Like, how do you get them in? Yeah. Um, it's, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, although I will say, and, um, though baseball is a challenge in the sense that we play every day, um, there are also advantages in the sense that um, like we spend just an insane amount of time every single day with our players, um, which you could argue whether that's good or bad, but it's not unusual for people to be at the park for 10 hours every day. So compared to like an NCAA environment where you have to be incredibly efficient with your training and testing processes, um, time is, is not necessarily maybe a particular practitioners because they're pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, strength coaches and athletic trainers in particular. Um, but the, the preseason is the most comprehensive, like get everything that we do is done at that time, like as early in the preseason as possible. Um, and then a pared down version of that mid season and postseason. And then there are a lot of the most fundamental pieces of that. So things like body composition, lower body strength, power, um, those things are tested, uh, 
usually on a, I would say on average on a monthly basis. Uh, but some of those things like counter movement jump is, is twice a week. Um, we have Nord boards at every affiliate. Um, so that can be a, a somewhat ongoing process. Uh, we do sprint testing, uh, once a month. So we, ha- we have different cadences for different tests, but some things are collected biweekly, some things monthly, um, and then some things annually. I would also say it, we have, um, when we do have a notable, uh, something notable, especially from the orthopedic assessment or a significant strength deficiency or asymmetry, there'll be a lot of like individual follow-up testing. So we'll try to do, we'll try to intervene for a couple weeks and then check back and see if, if we've moved the needle on that. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Austin. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around the maturation and specialization of sports science. But one thing that I really enjoyed in part two was the learning from the business world and other environments and bringing them learnings back to sport. So there's loads of examples that you could potentially use to do that like Austin has at the Royals. So really cool part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with Austin. Last, last question on this, Austin. If you had ultimate resource, ultimate time when it comes to injury risk reduction, what would be the gold standard for you that you would 
want to implement with this, this group of players that you've got that you don't do now? Oh, man. Um, I would... I'd probably go toward better granularity on strength and range of motion of the shoulder among our pitchers would be, uh, yeah, that'd probably be my, my white whale, at least, at least to a greater extent than we have now. And there are a lot of like time is a factor with that, but there are a lot of other, um, for example, like soreness is, is a huge one. Um, I mean, range of motion is more of a time, time issue especially the minor league level you have one athletic trainer and one strength conditioning coach for uh, 26 to 28 players and so it's difficult to um to like get all your pitchers um on a regular basis if you were to do that on like a bi-weekly basis multiple tests but also just the soreness that is associated with pitching for these guys like their shoulder they feel good when they get here, and then their shoulder and elbow are going to hurt for the next five months, period. And so um, there, it's hard to, to find a time. Like for a starting pitcher, it's hard to find a time because they pitch, and the next day they're too sore to do anything. Um, so do you get it post-game? Like then they're fatigued. The next day they're too sore. The day after that is usually the, the day after that or the, the next day is their side day. Um, so we don't want to interfere with that before. Um, so we usually test strength after um, that. And then after that point, you're starting to get toward their next start. So then they, they're worried about that. And then relievers, they don't, especially at upper, upper levels, they could pitch two days in a row, three days in a row. They could not pitch for five days. It's difficult to know um, when they're even going to be playing. And so um, it's difficult to figure out like when to capture those guys as well and I, another thing especially with range of motion is when in the day to like logistically fit that in is really challenging because like if you're measuring clinical like on the table internal and external shoulder rotation that's going to change a lot before they throw and after they throw um, so they'll warm up do a bunch of stuff in the training room um, have a pre-throwing routine then go throw and so if you're catching them before versus after, then that's going to look different. And so it's it's pretty difficult in this fluid of an environment to standardize enough um, to do a whole lot of clinical measures on like a daily or weekly basis. What makes, I mean, this is just perception from the outside, but half confirmed by the discussions we had over email and text and whatnot um, about baseball. But what makes baseball unique the way that it has so many different disciplines by a mechanist, you know, all the athletic trainers, training, conditioning, data, data science, all these within your remit, which I suppose when you look at soccer, football as an example, that's starting to go that way. But it seems that baseball has been there for a while with all these specialists. Am, am I back at the wrong tree or is that is that actually the case? And if so, what makes baseball especially in that sense that it seems to have got there earlier and seems to work? Um, that's a good question. And yeah, there's a lot of nuance there because I think there 
Baseball is a really interesting sport in the sense that, and I know everybody says this of their sport, like everybody thinks their sport's so unique um, and everybody thinks their sport is so traditional. And it is. They're, like other sports, there is a lot of tradition baked in and change is really, really hard in this environment. And so we'll talk about that. We'll complain about that. But it's also extremely progressive in other areas, uh, which is interesting, right? Um, in particular, like analytics is, is probably the biggest example of that. So you have a quote unquote traditional sport, but like Moneyball happened in baseball. Um, and so like research and development. And I would say that is an area that uh, I know the NBA is catching up. I know EPL is, is expanding in that area, but just because of Moneyball and its impact on like team performance, analytics is an area that's just well advanced of, of all other sports, uh, at least in so far as I'm aware. I'm not aware of other sports leagues that have uh, 15, 20, 30 people in their R&D departments. Um, and that's baseball. We usually call that research and development. Um, research being all the analysts that are that are studying sport and then development being the software developers on that side that build the tools that all the other people use. Um, and baseball... I would say strength conditioning was a pretty early adopter of baseball, uh, even though a lot of the coaches were resistant to it. Like in the 90s, you also had some pretty key players um, that were all in on that and full-time strength conditioning pretty early. Um, But holistically, I think the fact that baseball has, um, well, in, in English football as well, like those two environments have the most sophisticated player development systems. And so when you look at the scope of a, of a baseball operations department, like we have 160 people in baseball operations and we have the major league club, four full season teams, uh, one to three rookie ball teams, depending on, on the year, and then two teams in the Dominican Republic. So you have a massive player development pipeline compared to even the NBA as you have like your NBA team and G league, um, soccer or um like hockey is is similar maybe one extra layer down but i think the sophistication of the development processes um makes economies of scale if you will make sense because you can hire uh you can hire some sports scientists some uh psychologist um a dietitian and if you position those roles um well usually at the home base whether that's with the major league where the major league team is based or in Florida, or Arizona, the development complexes, you can like in a decentralized manner, serve all of your teams. And so because you have 200, 200 plus players across all these geographies um, and a big system, uh, I think it's, it's made sense to owners and front offices um, to kind of be on the front edge of a lot of these things in terms of the resources that we have available because it's not just if you hire a full-time dietitian it's not just that they're able to help those 26 guys if you set it up well they can impact um, all 250 by the systems and processes that they put in place and that applies to to everything um, so yeah I would say that's a a pretty big contributor to how all of these things have grown and conversely, probably uh, creates a lot of challenges in terms of how do we manage all of these of people. Of course. And we'll get onto that in a second. But it's interesting. Um, 
like comparison with with football and the the system that comes below the front kind of major league team that you that we see on TV or the EPL team that we see on TV and all the the academy and feeder teams and other clubs that that especially in the EPL now other clubs that the ownership group own who could potentially feed yeah so it just gets really it gets really complex so yeah it's an interesting uh, comparison that so one thing that I think is super interesting it's one thing we spoke about on in the lead up to hit and record was your ability to get information and learn from environments outside of sport so I'd love to get maybe some examples of where you've been able to do that why that's such a big thing for you to look outside your environment to to innovate yeah um I if I start on the background of that one I think that's been if I could characterize my approach throughout my career that's probably been uh one of my my biggest things I've tried to do um and I think part of that is just the way I'm wired like my th- I'm a huge nerd I'm interested in everything my three-year-old daughter uh, right now, has, she can go, like Toyota has the five Ys. She can go like 30 Ys in a row on me right now. Uh, I was that way and I never grew out of it. And so um, I've always just like wanted to learn about everything. But also early in my career uh, in U.S. Ski Snowboard here was kind of one of the early innovation hubs, especially in high performance sport and adopting a lot of those processes. And colleagues there... Uh, were really instructive uh, and encouraging to me that the innovation and again I would I would consider that um, at the front end of innovation in sport in the U.S. But innovation is not always about um, like a new solution like out of scratch, but it can just as easily be applying existing solutions to new environments. And I learned that from from them. Anything that you're trying to do or any problem that you face, there's an industry that does it better than you. Or there's an industry in which like that problem is even gnarlier. And so trying to look outward and then how does that apply is just such a huge opportunity. And like the ski team has extreme examples of this. Like they've learned from like aerospace engineering uh, or to like customized suits for our Nordic combined people to make them fly down the hill uh, faster. And I thought that was awesome because like my uncle worked for Lockheed Martin and research and development uh, for years. And funny enough, I just spoke with an aerospace engineer a few weeks ago who has built an instrumented mound to throw off of for pitchers using a lot of techniques from his material science uh, lab in terms of how you like get around some of the limitations of um, just four load cells on a steel plate uh, when we want to know more. Yeah, ground reaction forces, but like direction and center of pressure and, and how they're transmitting force into the ground. Um, so, yeah, that's always been I, I got that advice very early in my career. I'm wired that way. Um, and I think another kind of inciting incident throughout my career is as a coach, I was very struck by how irrational I felt some of my players and coaches were. Um, and that kind of drew me to the psychology space in particular behavioral 
economics, um, which humans are really irrational, but as Dan Ariely has coined, we're predictably irrational. And so learning like why people think the way they do and some of the cognitive heuristics and biases that that we have that lead us to think the way we do and how to overcome those things um, was big in terms of as a coach, like influencing your players to get them to do the things that that they need to do. Um, that kind of led me into all of that space, behavioral economics with like Kahneman and Tversky and all those folks, but even like Cialdini's work on influence uh, Chip and Dan Heath, um, like that was, that was a big one. Um, and then I also had one of my former players, uh, and I loved this kid. Uh, most people, uh, struggled with him cause he was very bright and very stubborn. He drove people nuts. I loved him. He, he sputtered out in double a, but he went back to, uh, he got into like the most competitive business school in the world. Uh, like twice as hard to get into as like Harvard Business School or London and got into their MBA program. And I was really happy for him. And I was like, dude, send me all of your reading lists. And he did. And that was also uh, extremely insightful, especially at the time that it occurred where I was building the the sports science department here, um, learning about innovation and technology, especially through the lens of like Silicon Valley Um was really insightful in terms of like what we were trying to do. Um, and I know you prefer examples uh, rather than like just sound bites. Uh, so a lot of it's like principles, like Everett Rogers diffusion of innovations theory. If we're talking about innovation. We'll kind of stick with that theme. Um, I have found few things to be as true as that, which for those unfamiliar and there's a, a long history of this in, in sociology and psychology, but um, the adoption of whether that's a technology, some of the original research on like hybrid corn in the United States, they, they were able to breed better corn, it was more drought resistant, had larger kernels, um, better in every way. But a ton of farmers like were not planting it and it didn't make any sense. And this puzzled some sociologists. So they started studying it came upon diffusion of innovations theory, which has been um, like that, that has been shown to be the case across all of these different disciplines. But basically, if you imagine a bell curve, um, it, the diffusion of any like idea, technology, anything progresses um, from you have the on the far left of that bell curve, you have your first two and a half percent. These are your innovators. These are the the people that are getting the computer or the iPhone, like before it even makes sense to have it, like it's still cumbersome. They don't even work like they're supposed to, but that's just the way they're wired. Like my uncle was that way. And then that next chunk is your early adopters. So they're not just like front of the line for no reason, but like once something starts to show promise, like they're on the front end of like, okay, I'm in, how can this help us? Um, and that's your next like 13 and a half percent. And from there, you get to the big part of the bell curve and you have the early majority or that 34% and then the late majority. And then you have the laggards on the back end and almost the spread of, of anything kind of follows that arc. And importantly, it, the crux of that whole process is in between the early adopter to early majority phase. 
Um, so like Jeff Moore calls this crossing the chasm. Um, and that's what like a lot of startups and, and um, technology-based companies have to get across that gap. Like how do you get from early adopters to early majority? Because once early majority happens, one, you're in the big part of the bell curve and then the late majority will, will come thereafter. Um, but that's been um, like having to like get through that process um, with almost anything that we've implemented in baseball operations, like both in my department or in just pitching or hitting development at large has kind of followed that cadence. So implementing technology, I know this wasn't the the theme of the, um, the, the chat that we had today, but is any sort of it, like you mentioned the Nord board, for example, anything like that gets put into a system so you can understand at what point it's at, at what you know about it, validity, reliability, all that kind of thing goes into this particular system that you've developed to ensure that you're getting what you need and want out of a particular technology. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Okay. And then what what other things in that within that system will influence whether you go it's a yes or a no? Um You've had a lot of really good guests on the podcast that are just phenomenal at this. Um, I, I think Javi Schelling was somewhat recent on it. Yeah, I would, uh, I would defer to all of those folks. We follow a similar process of you start with the reliability and validity because if your, if your data is not good, then there's nowhere to go with that. Um, and then you move into more like practicality. Of like how how can it be implemented? How much time is it going to take? What resources from what departments and and is that worth it? Um, and then cost, can we afford it? And is the return on investment um, there for us? And I think um, again, I won't I won't reiterate all of a bunch of great frameworks have been discussed on this podcast. Um, and I, I also recently the the sports tech research network. Uh, I don't know if Sam Robertson's leading it per se, but he's kind of coordinating it. They are working on what will be probably the most robust framework for thinking about this. And I think it'll be hugely beneficial to national governing bodies and sports leagues and individual organizations. I'm really excited about that coming out. So I think it'll be really instructive. I mean, people in my role are, are familiar with these things and you have to have a process for making these decisions. Um, but I think that framework is, is going to be really helpful to people. Um, if I could, if I could point to maybe one thing that, that people don't talk about as much with technology implementation, it would probably be a uh, trial ability of it because it's, and I've, um, I've tried to implement a lot of things and I've failed miserably, <laughs> um, at, a bunch of them <laughs> had moderate success with others and, and, um, things have gone well with, with others. And what I've learned, um, across that whole spectrum is it is impossible to forecast how technology adoption is going to go. And that's true how it's going to go with the players. That's true how it's going to go with the staff. <laughs> Uh, I have been so wrong so many times in both directions. Like there have been stuff that I thought was going to be the easiest thing in the world, complete failure. And then there are things that I was sweating bullets um, with <laughs> that 
and I was not optimistic and it was just smooth as can be. And so because you don't know what's going to happen, I think trialability of the technology, like, is it something you can get your hands on? Try with a few players, see how it's going to go and then go from there. Um, and actually along those lines, we talk about learning from business, like two, two principles along these lines. One comes from Jim Collins. He has a principle called fire bullets, then cannonballs. And you've probably heard it. The story goes, you have a couple battleships in the night and, and they're at war with one another and you only have so much gunpowder maybe for, for one shot. So you, instead of like taking your one shot and hoping for the best, you get a little bit of gunpowder and put it in a small gun and fire a bullet along the cannon line and listen for the ting. And if you miss, you take a little bit more gunpowder, fire again. And then once you hear the ting, now your guns are aligned and you know, and then you can use all your gunpowder for the big cannonball. And so trialability is a big one for, can we get our hands on this and see how it goes to see if it's going to make sense and if it's going to work in our environment. And kind of along the same lines, Eric Reese is known for his lean startup methodology, uh, which is basically a build, measure, learn loop. And again, it's impossible to forecast really what your stakeholders are going to want, need, how adoption is going to go. And so the solution, and this is like big in tech in particular, but the solution to that to product development is this build, measure, learn group. Don't try to get it right at the very beginning because you're not going to know exactly how it should be implemented. Just build what he calls a mean viable product, like the most basic version that'll work small scale and try that and, and measure how it's going and then learn how it's learn what you need to do differently with that to actually scale it across your system. And then once you find that direction, then you can go all in and scale it. And so how you go about doing that will be context specific in our environment. That may be trying something in Arizona, trying something at one affiliate. It may be trying something at an easy time of the year when we're not in season, but we have some players at a particular place. Let's see how it goes um, and then go from there. But there are also a number of technologies where it's, it's really difficult to do that. Something like markerless motion capture you can't just uh, like go install 10 cameras in your major league stadium, collect some data, and if we don't like it, we'll get rid of it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an important consideration uh, on, top of, um, on top of a lot of the fundamentals of technology implementation that, that a lot of your guests have articulated really well. Absolutely. And Javi was a, um, a great example there. Good work pulled that out i would have forgotten about that but yeah javi did a, a great podcast on that so thank you for that so just to round up a little bit we're 50 odd minutes into the into our chat so i just want to say firstly thank you for coming on i know it's taken a while for probably on my end definitely to pester you enough um Fiti, finally give <laughs> finally give in <laughs> finally give in <laughs> to come on so thank you for uh, thank you for putting up with me but if anyone wants to chat about anything else that you've anything that you've mentioned Where's the best place to get you, Austin? Um, I'm not as publicly active uh, as I probably should be, um, 
But yeah, you can reach out on probably Twitter, which is just Austin R. Triggers uh, is my handle, uh, or perhaps LinkedIn uh, would probably be the, the two easiest places to get a hold of me. What's the R, Austin? Is it Rob? It's Robert, isn't it? It's not, is it? When you said Austin R. What's what? When you said Austin R. Is it, is oh, the, Austin R. Driggers. What's the R? Uh, Ryan, oh, Ryan, my middle name. Oh, I thought it was going to be Rob. Yep. I was going to be delighted. Ah, no. <laughs> Sorry. That would have been a great bonding it opportunity. Was, was. My, my dad wanted to name for. me Nolan Ryan. Uh, he's like one of the best pitchers of all time. Actually, I, um, I know it's mostly a podcast of... So People aren't, uh, I won't show the team logo, but I have a Nolan Ryan <laughs> bobblehead on my desk. Uh, my dad wanted to name me Nolan Ryan, okay. uh, but my mom was off of Nolan, so they went with Austin Ryan. Okay. But yeah, the R is, is just my middle name. Okay, that's all good. Well, thank you for that. Really appreciate it. It's great to um, put a face to an email address and a phone number. So um, thank you very much. Look forward to keeping in touch and uh, we'll chat soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 425 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I really appreciate Austin coming on, being so open and honest about the injury risk reduction strategies that they're using at the Royals, how that's developed over time, and how that can be implemented or similar to your environment, the listeners. So I really appreciate Hawking Dynamics, Team Builder, Smarter Base, Omega Wave, and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. Really appreciate their support. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys. So if you're interested in any of their products, please reach out. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I look forward to chatting to you next week. Bye.